Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Donna Potter of Duke University in part two of their discussion on the problem with RAD diagnosis. So getting back to, um, and I really appreciate the empathy you're bringing in for the parents too, because we don't want to to vilify them for trying to access something that oh would help. I mean, yeah. So I really appreciate that. Um, so we had this sort of rad thing that mushroomed into this big, like it's like a snowball going down the hill, and it just gathered more and more symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then you know, then we had the. Rad diagnosis that first appeared, I, I forget what year in that eighties. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think you said a little bit too about the inadequacies of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then why don't you talk then about the revision of that and the shift for DSM five before we kind of get to the more we have to say about this. <laughs> okay. So, so we got to a place where um, we were looking at reactive attachment disorder as two sides of the same coin. Yes. And so some kids could have, could demonstrate a disinhibited form and some kids would, inhi- would demonstrate an inhibited form. Mm-hmm. And what that means is essentially a disinhibited form is a kid who um, is socially, um, socially disinhibited. So they are, um, they might in a lot of ways look like a kid with some pretty significant attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're up in people's space. They don't recognize people's boundaries. Um, they will, they're the sort of, um, the, the, um, Thing that most people notice about the kids who have this problem is that they will walk away with any stranger. So anything that looks interesting, they don't seem to have that stranger danger that normal, you know, typically developing kids have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's sort of the, the one group and that's the larger group. Those are the, you know, when we see reactive attachment disorder in orphanages, there's dramatically more kids that look like that. The other side of the coin is this disinhibited form. And really what we're looking at there is a group of kids who have behaviors that look very similar to autism and to depression. Mm-hmm. So they're very withdrawn. They don't seek out um, help from other caregivers. Um, they, they sort of keep to themselves, even if they're sick or they're um, hurt, they, they don't seek out help. And sometimes they, they even reject comfort from others. And so the way that people were conceptualizing this was that this was sort of the far end of the attachment spectrum. So mm-hmm. you had kids who were securely attached, and that was what we thought of as two-thirds of the kids in the population that we knew sort of worldwide. Generally speaking, um, we have this group of kids, and we know that they're securely attached because they seek out, and we're talking about in the first two years of life, basically, they're going to seek out their attachment figure when they are distressed, they're also going to check back with their attachment figure. So we look at um, what we call safe haven behavior, which Mm -hmm. is I'm going to run back to you if I get scared or hurt, or I need you to organize my feelings in some way. And then we also have proximity seeking. So I want to stay close to you because I feel most comfortable when I'm with you. Um, We have secure base behavior, which is sort of like, I'm going to use you as my secure base so I can go off and explore the world. And as long as I can check back with you and it's that checking back that we don't see in kids with disinhibited um, socialization disorder. 
um, and, and which is the new phrase for yes. reactive attachment disorder. Yes. And then um, we have um, uh, separation protest. So when you leave, it is upsetting to me and I'm going to object to that strongly. So again, thinking about, you know, 18 months to 24 months here. Um, those behaviors are all actually facilitated by the caregiver who is demonstrating their own attachment behaviors. So in order for those kids to be securely attached to do those really good things, the, the caregiver needs to be sensitive to their signals, make positive attributions about the behaviors that they see, mm -hmm. um, be a good cheerleader that scaffolds the environment for success, Mm -hmm. and be physically and psychologically available often enough to create that connection. Mm -hmm. So when caregivers do their jobs and kids do their jobs, two thirds of the time it works out great. Right. For the, other, for the next group over, we look at the kids who are, um, have an avoidant insecure attachment relationship with their caregiver. And so these are the kids who have learned that mm, my caregiver is not all that great at um, responding when I need her or him. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to act like I really don't. And that way my caregiver won't run away from me. I can stay close as long as I don't act too needy. Mm -hmm. And then there's a smaller group of kids that we, that, that I used to conceptualize as sort of being the next spot over on the spectrum of kids who have either what we would call an ambivalent or, um, oh gosh, the word just ran out of my head, an, an ambivalent relationship, which was um, essentially where I have learned that my caregiver is really anxious about the world. And if I need my, it, I need to make sure that my caregiver doesn't feel like I'm going to run away from them. So I'm going to stay really, really close. And um, I'm going to be difficult to comfort because Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I'm going to stay really close to my caregiver so that um, my caregiver knows that I really need them. Um, and so then we thought of reactive attachment disorder as the next step over. Right. And it turns out that's really not true at all because actually reactive attachment disorder is not about an individual relationship. So it's not the child-caregiver relationship. Reactive attachment disorder is a set of symptoms that develops in the absence of a caregiver. So it's actually not even on the same spectrum. It's a, right. it's a different thing. Right. And in fact, if you put a kid who has not had a caregiver with a caregiver, if they have an inhibited um, form of reactive attachment disorder, that solves the problem. That is, that is the intervention. Give that kid a caregiver, and if the caregiver is warm and nurturing and doing all the things I just described, mm -hmm. that kid will, will actually be okay. Mm -hmm. The kids with what we are now calling disinhibited socialization disorder, which mm -hmm. I love the fact that they took out the word attachment, it doesn't matter how good the parent is. It doesn't matter. Right. They can have a great parent that shows all of the appropriate behaviors and the kid will show those behaviors back to the parent, but they'll still be disinhibited because it actually isn't connected. Right. If right. They have had this period of not having a caregiver, particularly in the first two years, but up to the first five years, then that is just a link that continues. They continue to struggle with. Right. Right. And so that's why you're saying, you know, splitting out the, you know, reactive attachment disorder from the disinhibited social engagement disorder was helpful. Exactly. Yes. 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 And a step, a definite step in the right direction. Absolutely. Yes. 
And, you know, then we also have folks, and before we get to, you know, what, what should we call this? Because, uh, you know, when I start talking about the difficulties with the reactive attachment disorder diagnosis, even as it appears now, and um, that, you know, we have people like Dan Siegel and, and others that are saying it, it, in the way we first conceptualize it, it's extremely rare anyway, then... Right the outcry is, well, first from parents, it is not rare and I live with it every day and you don't understand, um, which I think they're not really understanding. We're not saying those behaviors aren't there, but we're saying in terms of calling it that, that's a misnomer. But then mm-hmm. you even got therapists that are like, well, what are we supposed to say? What are we supposed to call it? You know, it's almost like this is our common language that we want to keep using. What, yeah. what are we even supposed to say to, to express these difficulties then? So what do you say to that? (laughs) Um, I say that real life is a lot more complicated than that. Um, So I I recognize that struggle, and I think it's an important struggle. But um, we need to recognize that kids can have lots and lots of things that they're struggling with all at once. Mm -hmm. Um, That means caregivers have lots and lots of things that they have to struggle with all at once. So, you know, if we're going to look at what a kid like this really needs, we're going to be thinking about, first of all, the caregivers are going to need a ton of support. In the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, the foster parents that were part of that project had 24-7 access to pediatricians. They had social workers visiting on a regular basis who weren't there to tell them how bad their kid was. They were there to say, what can we do to help you? Because Mm -hmm. we recognize that what you're doing is hard work. So what can we do to help you? Um, They had respite care that was, you know, provided that was part of this process. So if we think about you know, all of the services um, for kids in the United States as a whole, but gosh knows, in, in, there was just an um, a article that came out um, recently in North Carolina about how um, some national survey just showed that North Carolina is the worst child mental health provider of any state in the country. So I have that claim to fame. Yay. Um, but uh, what I think as a whole, we struggle with mental health in our country. And um, until we can stop stigmatizing people and we can actually offer consistent help and we can think about changing our system so that the kids who have the most need get the best trained providers instead of the ones who have the most need getting the people who are just out of school trying to, you know, put in their time before they can have an easier way of doing life. Um, you know, I think that, uh, those are the people that need the most training and the most support, both in terms of the therapists that are working with them, but also in terms of the families themselves. So in my dream world, um, we would have respite providers that were partnered with families so that it wasn't that your kid is getting bounced from here, there and everywhere, but that they actually had safe, consistent, people that, you know, ideally family member kind of level people that they know well and that they feel comfortable with and that that is um, built into their routine so that their primary attachment figures can get some rest and can get filled back up again because this is hard work and it goes on for a long time. 
Mm-hmm. Then we could think about, um, you know, making sure that they're getting the right educational assessments, um, recognizing all of the, you know, the different islands of competence, but also the places where they're really struggling in school um, and helping, you know, it, it takes more than just parents. Um, schools have to be a part of the process that can help with making sure that they're getting the optimal care in school um, and not just kicking them out because they're difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, parents spend so much of their time uh, fighting with public schools around, you know, IDEA and what services can my kid get? And, um, you know, there's just, it, it's just this constant battle. And in that battle, these kids are growing up. And oftentimes we're seeing depression and substance abuse as they move towards adolescence. Um, And that's part of, in my opinion, the response to the environment and to how they are being seen in society. Um, So it's just this constant battle. And so I feel like reactive attachment disorder is a family problem. You know, if you're looking at it in the disinhibited form, um, which is mostly what we're going to be looking at because, you know, the idea, according to the research, is that if you have a kid who has true reactive attachment disorder, as it's shown in the DSM-5, that what's going to happen is they're going to get adopted into a family and they're going to do better. That doesn't mean that a lot of those parents aren't feeling really overwhelmed because they could still have issues with, um, with things like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I think when we raise that piece of the um, puzzle up and we can show people like this is really a, this is really about neurodevelopmental damage. Um, that will be helpful too. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that's where a lot of parents really just, it, it's so exhausting to be constantly battling a system and to be constantly trying to keep your kids safe in the age where there's electronics everywhere and kids are exposed to things we can't control. And um, so I feel like that's a big piece of the puzzle too, um, looking at the neurodevelopmental aspects of this. Um, Interestingly, the research shows that kids in institutions are, who are, how do I say this? The, the kids in institutions who are most likely to end up having either um, disinhibited engagement disorder, I said that wrong before, or um, reactive attachment disorder have lower IQs. And so there's, there's a connection there already. Um, my guess is that that's actually related to neurological damage. Um, yes. And so they would be more predisposed to demonstrating some of these attachment issues. Yes. So, um, so I think, um, yeah, that's what I would say. I, I think that the piece of the puzzle, like where does mental health fit into all of that? Yes. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think part of it is around really good psychoeducation, um, around, um, parenting strategies that can work for kids who struggle with cause and effect thinking. Um, could be really helpful. But again, it's really, it's putting us back um, closer to the developmental disabilities side of the world rather than um, thinking more about an access one kind of diagnosis in the DSM. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about old diagnosis there, but yeah. The, no, but, you know, no, but I, and I, I really hear what you're saying. And I, I, you know, we do this in-home intensive program around the country and you're, we're usually asked to come in because the child has a rat, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that's just the shorthand of a lot of parents yeah. and how they're understanding this. And, and we're trying to, you know, kind of educate about that more. But um, I think too, 
the the idea of rad it's like oh we can fix it with some strategies and when i have to come in and say you know i'm really wondering about some fetal alcohol issues i think we need a different kind of assessment um he's you know i'm seeing some major delays in terms of cognitive functioning and i think that that's just another layer of uh, families feeling really overwhelmed and no way i mean i can't do like this therapeutic parenting and then this will all go away yeah so that's another hard piece that I well, and that's the grief piece, right? Like that's where that's where the the people I think in the developmental disabilities world are so much more familiar. Um, you know, it reminds me of that. There's there's a poem about a person who thinks they're going to Italy and they end up in Holland. Yeah, I know. <laughs> It's like that. Just, it's like okay, we're just gonna have to be Holland, right? Yeah, we're gonna have to go to Holland. We're gonna have yes. to deal with the fact that this is not what we expected, but it can still be beautiful. And so, rather than you know, I've heard therapists who you know describe themselves as red therapists say things like, "Your child will never love you." I've heard that so many times from so many different people. Um, I had a kid tell me that they had rad, and that meant they couldn't love anybody. And and so that really what's it's not human you know that's not how humans work we love because we're human Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if you have autism or reactive attachment disorder or cancer you love because you're human Mm -hmm. and so i think helping parents that's that's that piece about i feel like that rad therapy is um you know in that old school kind of way is is really telling parents that the thing that you do that facilitates secure attachment in a kid when you have positive attributions about their behavior, this crucial piece about forming attachment, stop doing it. And so, and, and, you know, I can think about the, you know, it boils down to, can you find joy in your child? And if you have a professional telling you, don't, don't do that. Don't buy that your kid is doing something good right now. Um, I had a parent once described to me that the reason she knew her child was manipulative was because when they went to her example was they, when they went to a restaurant, she would help the waitress clear the table. And she was like, you see what I mean? And I was like, no, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't see what you mean. Do yeah. I, do I understand that she was seeing her kid as being charming to a stranger because a stranger was, you know, essentially didn't know her. Yeah. But what if she was just like, wow, this waitress thinks my kid is really cool and I'm her mom. And so I get to like take some joy in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we are, if we are trained to not feel every morsel of joy that we can in our kids. Um, first of all, I think it has to be trained out of you. And, and second of all, it, it's, it gets in the way. Like that's the opposite of what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. Yeah. W- working against the whole thing you're, you're, you know, saying you're trying to treat. Mm-hmm. So I know that therapists listening and even other listeners are like okay so this kid comes into my office and you know they're adopted and they're having all of these symptoms that you know maybe adopted out of foster care or orphanage care and or um and you know it, it sounds like this rad thing but i'm not supposed to do this rad thing but i have to figure out something because i have to get the insurance to to pay for what i you know i know they're all like okay now so what am I supposed to do? And I know I hear what you're saying is it's a complex assessment and it's, Mm -hmm. it can be looking at a lot of different things. 
I mean, what do you do if you're like the local provider who is seen to at least know somewhat about this? You're not in a major city where a lot of services are readily available for assessment at a university or something. I mean, what what do you tell those people, Donna? <laughs> I think I would say I think I would say um, think beyond yourself first in your assessment, and then figure out what's your slice of the pie. So if I, so, so when I need to come into an assessment, recognizing that I'm not going to be the only person involved in helping a family, um, that it's going to take an entire team and that our team is not going to be designed to change a child. Our team is going to be designed to help a family. Um, and so if I can come in with that mindset first, and figure out, you know, as especially if we're talking about a social worker um, who that's like their training is about engaging in systems. But no matter who the mental health person is, um, they're usually the one who's going to help a family get engaged with different systems. And so we need to be thinking about an ecological perspective. We need to be thinking about the whole biopsychosocial picture. Mm-hmm. So do we have a physician on board? Um, are we looking at, in the ideal world, a developmental pediatrician? Has there been any genetic evaluation of this child? Um, how do we... huge thing that we didn't even really touch on too much, but good, mm-hmm. great that you're bringing it up now. Yeah. So, um, so looking at sort of like what are all the pieces of this puzzle in terms of what might be causing it, and then let's look at what is actually manifesting in terms of functional impairment. Mm-hmm. So if we, you know, once we sort of understand the pieces of this that are biological for as much as we can, the pieces of this that are environmental for as much as we can, the pieces of this that are trauma history for as much as we can, let's, the, the family system piece, um, because there's no, you know, families influence us. And that doesn't mean some families are good and some families are bad. It just means we need to understand the influence. That's all. Families influence us. So um, when I'm tired, my kids know it. And, you know, there is a different vibe in the house. When I'm tired, when I've worked, you know, multiple 12-hour days in a row, there is a different vibe in the house. If the family isn't sleeping, that's its own set of struggles. So, so once we have sort of this larger assessment of the family dynamics and everybody's struggles and where are the resiliency factors in the family and where are the places where maybe they're engaging in systems in good ways and where are the places where they're engaging in systems in bad ways, and then I can figure out, okay, so how much of what's happening for this kid right now is actually psychiatric? What's mental health? And what's all the other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So is this kid depressed because they don't understand what's happening in school and they're getting bullied because they can't interact with other kids? Um, Is this kid oppositional because my parent is too tired to keep the limit that they said they were going to set with me and I know if I keep pushing, I'll get what I want to have to happen. Mm -hmm. So, So we really need to think about that whole picture and recognize that if we look at the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, if we've got a kid who has a conduct disorder or some sort of behavioral disorder, um, we can't actually fix that with the kid. We have to work with the parents. And that doesn't mean that the parents are, that, that they were wrong or broken in some way. Mm-hmm. It simply means they're the answer. And, and so the analogy, um, my, my good friend Kelly Sullivan, who's a um, psychologist, she, she says, um, if I have a headache, 
the aspirin didn't cause my headache, but it's the thing that's going to get rid of my headache, right? Mm -hmm. And so similarly with oppositional behavior in children, the parents don't have to have been the cause of that oppositional behavior, but they are the answer for fixing it. And it's exhausting. And so they need lots of support to be able to follow mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in the same way. I mean, so one more analogy, you know, thinking about like, I would really love to lose 20 pounds, but I really hate exercising and I really hate the idea of Weight Watchers. I know that's how I would lose 20 pounds, but I really hate that answer. I want somebody to give me a better answer. I want them to tell me that I can do just one thing and it will be better because the other stuff is hard work and it takes a long time and it doesn't just get progressively better. It gets better and then it gets worse again and then it gets a little bit better and then it gets worse again and it's exhausting, but life is exhausting sometimes. And mm -hmm. that's why it's so important to focus on the joy. Like right. if we can just get people to really focus on what they actually appreciate. Um, right. And I've had, I've had so many families that have said to me, like, I can't find anything. I have nothing. There's nothing about this child that gives me any joy. I would start with, go look at them when they're asleep. Mm -hmm. You know, just when there's, when there's a moment of peace. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can just, I think so much of it is also about some cognitive behavioral strategies for parents mm -hmm. to change their mindset mm -hmm. so that instead of hearing he's being manipulative right now to just say, you know what? I don't care. I don't care why he's doing what he's doing. He's doing what I want him to do. Mm -hmm. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I do have to say, I have to give a plug for TheraPlay here because yeah. I feel like we are a model that as therapists, we are trying to orchestrate moments of meeting and joy yes. in a very here and now way that affects both the parent and the child's brain. Um, and, you know, I've had parents before say, when we first started coming here, that was the only time I had any fun at all exactly. or felt any, like, positive something, you know. And so, you know, I think sometimes we do just have to start there. And I guess... I want to see if I am summing this up. I, I think, too, in terms of the role of the therapist um, is we need to move away from this idea that I'm the rad specialist in the community and, you know, you come here and I tell you how to do this and, and this is what you do, too. A much like uh, looking at this, when children come to us with this level of complexity based on their history, based on potential exposure to drugs and alcohol in utero, you know, based on abuse, neglect, all of these things, genetics, that we have to think in terms of a team. Yes. And, you know, what, to reiterate what you said, what is our piece that we can help with and what do we need others to help with? Um, and that that is a, a, a more a realistic and helpful way to be looking at this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think the TheraPlay piece in terms of the kid and the caregiver together is brilliant. I really, really do. Because I think joy is the missing piece. It sounds, yeah. gosh, I, if I had known I was going to be talking like this 20 years ago, I would never have believed it. But it is true. It is the most important piece of attachment. It's the most important piece of being human. We right. Be able to find it. 
Yeah. And like, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, say with the first thing when I'm going into, you know, doing an uh, in-home intensive is to get laughter. Like if I can get, you know, some kind of shared joy and laughter, you know, then, you know, I, I, I'm doing something. So, yeah. And then yeah. there's hope. Yes. Yes. Well, Donna, thank you so much for your time. I could talk to you for several more hours about this. Um, I think it's such an important topic and, you know, I've admired for years your diligence um, in terms of getting accurate information out about this and studying it and writing about it and really trying to get it right. And I just really want to thank you for that. Oh, thanks, Karen. Yeah. I'm great mean, getting to talk to you. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been committed to what is truly the answer and let's, you know, as much as we're talking about joy, you've also been committed to staying in science. And so mm -hmm. I just really appreciate the balance that you bring. And thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. It was fun. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.